Good morning, everyone. What a beautiful group. Wow. It's really wonderful to be here this morning um, and talking about the feminine, the sacred feminine. But I have to say, Laura and I were saying we're really much more comfortable doing this together <laughs> rather than doing it alone. It's such um, it's a topic that's hard to talk about and put into words. Um, this morning's talk and this weekend's retreat is called Reclaiming the Feminine in Our Practice. And I was saying, you know, I think if we were really going to reclaim the feminine in our practice this morning, we should just all lay down and take naps. Because, <laughs> um, you know, this language around the feminine can be really confusing and problematic um, because it brings up all these ideas we have about gender and binaries. But we're talking this weekend um, about the sacred feminine, which is something that Laura and I would like to define a little bit first, um, even though, again, language is, just does not do it justice in terms of um, giving us a real idea of what we're talking about. But I'm going to try and just to start, make this distinction between what we're calling the sacred feminine and what we might call the social feminine. So this sacred feminine that we're talking about is something that is in all of us, regardless of gender. Um, it's archetypal, it's energetic. These are elemental qualities. The social feminine is something that is affected by this sacred feminine. But it's really the social phenomena of gender, um, and in particularly the relationship of women and female-identified people with what is the feminine. So sometimes I think it's easier to use the words yin and yang, even if they're not entirely unproblematic either. Um, they more kind of, even in their sounds, um, point to something that is energetic. So yin sometimes is described as being receptive, referring to depth or darkness, the moon, matter, density, form. It's something slower. It's the imminent reality right here and now. And yang, which is often connected with the masculine, can be described as active, connected to height or lightness, to the sun, to energy and space, to emptiness, to things that are faster and more transcendent. And they're both in each other and in all things, and even the symbol itself shows how they're interrelated. They're not oppositional, but they're really in relationship to each other. And what we're exploring this weekend is really um, the imbalance 
of yin and yang or the sacred feminine and the sacred masculine, particularly in our practice, but really in our lives. And how that is related to the social feminine and gender and particularly patriarchy. I like this quote from Bell Hooks, I use it a lot, where she says, patriarchy has no gender. So we're not talking about masculine against feminine or men against women, but we're really talking about the oppressive forces that have led to this imbalance, led to the diminishment of the feminine often. So where we kind of hold up the active over the receptive, the transcendent over the imminent, the light over the dark and depth. But I like to add to the fact that patriarchy has no gender, that patriarchy has no winners, that these imbalances really affect all of us. So they might privilege some of us in terms of access or resources, but we're all distorting these qualities of feminine and masculine. And I, I think we can feel it that, you know, in the height or depth of winter, you know, we're, we're active. We're all showing up, sitting up straight, listening to a talk. When really I was thinking during the <laughs> sit, I was like, next year I'm not teaching anything in the month of February. <laughs> You know, this just deep longing for rest and for nourishment. And to me, that's what the feminine is. I, I love Audre Lorde's essay on the uses of the erotic, where she talks about the erotic not as just a, uh, a sex, in a sexual sense, but in a sensual sense, in this touching into the depths of the feminine, which is really this receptive quality of feeling, of sensing, not, not talking and defining, but really resting into and, and knowing on a deeper level, which is what we'll be doing this weekend. Um, but this morning we're talking, and I'm going to stop talking and let Laura talk a little bit. Yeah. Um, good morning. It's kind of funny to think about these notes, too, because... Um, <laughs> These are like my security blanket. I think I've spoken before that um, for me, um, part of my kind of playing with the feminine and the masculine and, um, and showing up in spaces like this and being in the front and saying something, uh, it, it always feels as if the, the thing that I want to express doesn't have the words that I want to, they, the words don't come up for me. And so when I rely on these words, I lose contact a little bit with that energetic field. But I have to say something. And <laughs> I, I actually, in a way, you could say, and this is this play about the importance, I appreciate what you're saying, of both the balancing of the sacred and the feminine. So if you think about the feminine as this receptive, quiet, deepening feeling into and the masculine as a, as a kind of outward, um, directive, linear, ra more rational expression, um, because I, I actually do feel like I am still in a process of um, working, working very hard on um, finding that balance of feminine and masculine with what you could say is my sacred masculine doesn't, 
hasn't come online so fully yet that I actually, you know, when I'm preparing for a talk, I, I grab onto a lot of words. <laughs> and um, so I have some here, just in case I, I, I render myself mute um, in the face of, of speaking about this. And I, I, I also want to say about that, which is, you know, I was telling Seb last night, um, so my, my intellectual mind was playing with this idea of sacred and feminine and kind of imagining the challenges to that. Well, define that, clarify that. What's this and what's that? How do we put these things in categories? And um, so I went to sleep and about 3 o'clock in the morning, I woke up and it was as if my body was was speaking volumes. It's as if the feminine was just kept speaking and speaking and speaking. This is what I am. <laughs> so um, I got I I I didn't want to get up, but I got up and I went to my computer and I I wrote a couple of things, went back to bed and in and those because I, I had trouble hanging on to them. You know, they they were alive in me in that moment and somehow they didn't quite make it uh, to my head this morning. So I wanted to capture a few things. And um, so what I'd like to do is start off by recognizing that today, February 1st, is um, a holiday of the sacred feminine. It is the um, holiday, the Celtic holiday of Imbolc. So this is a 12,000-year-old Celtic holiday. And it is the uh, celebration of the Celtic goddess Brigitte. And it is the season of lambing. This is when lambing started to happen um, in uh, the continents of Ireland and England. So this uh, Celtic uh, goddess is the, um, is the symbol of uh, new beginnings, of the of the, of this beginning of fertility and the beginning of spring, of um, a renewal of the hidden potential of the earth, stirring and awakening. And she's the one who brings fertility to the land. So I thought that was kind of cool <laughs> that uh, we gather together in this community and in our practice. And that's aligned with this very century-old understanding and recognition of this life and death force of the sacred feminine. And. Um, And Seb mentioned Audre Lorde, and uh, when we first thought about doing The Sacred Feminine last year, this article that she referenced was the first thing we turned to. And as soon as um, I opened it up and read it, it was as if I, I was able to viscerally understand what it is that we were going to explore here, even if I didn't know it here. So I wanted to use her words a little bit because I feel like she captures through this poetry a little bit about what we're pointing to. She says, there are many kinds of power, used and unused, acknowledged or otherwise. The erotic is a resource within each of us that lies in a deeply female and spiritual plane firmly rooted in the power of our unexpressed or unrecognized feeling. 
so there's many ways that she goes on to describe this, and I just want to pull out a few of her words, um, a few of those descriptions that she's pointing to this erotic, this feminine. She says um, this erotic, this what I would also call this sacred feminine, is, to quote her, how acutely and fully we can feel in the doing. The yes within ourselves. A measure between the beginnings of our sense of self and the chaos of our strongest feelings. Something that, quote, feels right to me. A power that comes from sharing. Begin to live from within outward. The inward illuminating our actions upon the world and the passions of love in its deepest meanings. So, at Zen Center, we have been in this um, exploration about the impact of patriarchy and how it has um, kept us from being in contact with this source, with this spiritual source. And we are um, learning to feel in and listen to and take responsibilities for the way that patriarchy has um, crushed, I use the word crushed, that's the word that comes up for me, crushed this particular source of power within us, within men, within women, within people who identify um, in a non-conforming gender way, in everybody. And this is a force that has been in play for centuries. It's so deep what we swim in that we can barely even distinguish it and clarify it. And it's not as if um, Seb and I are up here having it all clarified, you know. We're wanting to just um, begin this process together and to begin to name these things. And I want to also just mention that the way we've been talking about it, I think the men, the males in the undoing patriarchy has talked about toxic masculinity versus sacred masculinity. And in the sacred feminine, we've been talking about a diminished or dis, dim, distorted femininity as opposed to a sacred femininity. And so it's like, a, to me, it feels like a sorting process. How do we sort? What, what's operating now? What's, what's the field that I'm bumping up against? in my mind, in my body, in my practice. When a deep feeling or experience comes up in me when I'm practicing, a feeling of anger or fear or distress, do I meet it with this um, toxic masculinity that says, bad, <laughs> so, you know, to suppress it, to empty it out, to um, destroy it and conquer it? Do I get overwhelmed by it and become it and lose contact and um, feel as if somehow I'm inferior because I have these feelings of fear and doubt and anger and sensuality and sexuality and they're coming to meet me and I over-identify with them as, as, um, as something to be uh, ashamed of. Or do I bring a sacred feminine lens that opens and receives and welcomes and listens 
and uh, responds in some creative way that helps it to return to its wholeness. So um, the one other piece I, I want to just bring in before we, we, I send it back to Seb is uh, I, don't, I don't think anyone in this room, um, it's lost on anyone in this room what the impact of centuries of patriarchy, the methodology of crushing, and then that methodology being taken up by imperialism, by white supremacy, by capitalism, has done to ourselves, our bodies, our, our, our feeling of belonging as a people, but also to the earth. And um, my feeling is that the feeling of the sacred feminine is one in which I think we have to reclaim that sensitivity, that feeling, in order to open up to the pain and the harm that we've all created and uh, really let ourselves be moved by that. Thank you, Laura. As Laura spoke, um, it just came up for me um, from last year how, how many times we had to touch into and rename the complexity of this and the simplicity of thinking that we can talk about it in terms of binaries of masculine and feminine. And um, that's what we have. And there's something about that polarity that is helpful. You know, we do have the sun and the moon and the light and dark. We, we live in a world of polarities, but also complexities. And so um, just continually coming back to naming how limited language is when we try and talk about the feminine and the masculine, um, and then how necessary they are for understanding both the energies, but also the historical reality of how this diminishment and distortion has played out um, on people's bodies and lives, and how old it is. It's, it's millennia. You know, really, race and racism are hundreds of years old. Patriarchy, it's, it's so interwoven with our reality that we, we can't even pull it apart sometimes. And it becomes quite confusing and challenging. Um, and why this return to sensing and feeling into our reality and being able to speak it and share it and explore it um, is so important. Laura mentioned, you know, this one lectern in Zen, and I was I was saying to to her before we went in how one thing I appreciate about the tradition I teach in is that we rarely teach alone. Um, we're encouraged to teach in pairs, um, which is which is very comforting, and there is something also um, less singular and individualistic about it that um, points to something. Um, let's say feminine, um, which is good because I'm about to bash my tradition. So, um, so I'm I'm trained primarily in the insight community, which is uh, um, an American. I don't know if something that's only about 50 years old can be called a tradition. Um, it's a community, really, uh, that um, grew out of um, teachers. Western white teachers primarily who practiced in Southeast Asia, so Thailand and Burma, um, Sri Lanka. And 
um, it, it's very challenging. There are many reasons why I love this tradition, its roots in the Pali Canon, in um, early Buddhism. Uh, I tend to uh, really feel comfortable in a lot of um, what might be considered more masculine forms of, of study and um, silent practice and um, lists. There are lots of lists in our tradition. Um, and have found a lot of comfort also in the racial and cultural diversity within this American form of, of Theravadan or early Buddhist practice. Um, so the insight community has, has really paid a lot of attention to this. And, um, and it's been a conversation that, at least for the past 10 years or so, has, has gone quite deep. And um, I really ap appreciate that. and and have grown so much through that that I'm not sure I could find necessarily in other traditions of the Dharma in the West. But there is um, a huge controversy in the Thai lineage um, of the ordination of nuns that is abominable. I mean, it's really um, un unconscionable, really, that women are not considered um, able to, full, to fully ordain. Um, so there are a lot of complexities within that, but what it, how it plays out is something like this. If a, a woman who has been a nun for decades um, encounters a, a novice monk who just robed the day before, she's considered junior to him just by virtue of her gender. Now, I always think, like, if we said this was true for people of color, or let's say black people, we would be outraged. I mean, we would be breaking windows. Um, but this, this has played out in a way that is argued away with all these facts of tradition and um, processes that relate to rules and regulations that were written down thousands of years ago. We don't have any female images, really, in our tradition. So you might go to insight centers and see images um, of female figures, but they're actually borrowed from Mahayana traditions. So there's Kuan Yin's or Prajnaparamitas or Taras, but there's nothing within the Theravadan Buddhist tradition that um, communicates the female form. This is not something that is being talked about as much in our tradition. There are not major books written on it the way there are in Zen tradition or in the Tibetan tradition. Um, there's very little academic study so far of how it's played out, although that's starting. And I once asked my, my teacher, Tanisara, who's uh, Anglo-Irish from London, but practiced in Thailand with Ajahn Chah for many years, how she experienced this um, balance of feminine and masculine. And the way she described it is that the practice and the tradition is very young, let's say. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on silent practice, on, on um, uh, a path, 
you know, which is rarely talked about in the same way in other traditions, there's a clear progress of insight, it's called, in our tradition that's very linear, very active. Um, there's a lot of sitting for hours and days and weeks and months. Um, and it's not within a communal form as much. Um, but that, that young practice, she described it being embedded in a yin culture of communities and families and food and children running around and chanting. Um, there was a musicality and a sense of service. It was really held by the lay community, um, but very interactive with the monastics. And this image of taking this young practice and plopping it in our young culture really struck me of why it feels so um, harsh. And when I practice, especially at certain retreat centers, um, there's so much stillness and silence and non-relationality that it can feel quite isolating and quite upsetting for people. And I can feel it within myself, this sort of bias towards individual practice, individualism, um, towards uh, this technology of meditation, this obsession with mindfulness and the scientific proof for why mindfulness works, and the loss of the body, the loss of chanting, the loss of bowing, the loss of ritual that you find in most of the communities that I practice in, really feels to me like a draining of that feminine energy. So although I can bring the feminine into my individual practice, it's plopped into this young culture or um, young environment that makes it very hard to sustain, to, to nurture that. Um, so I, you know, I continue to work with it, and I see it coming in. Um, the balancing elements are coming in through other ways. This um, rise of many more people of color and P and POC teachers who are coming into our tradition, bringing in these other elements. Um, a lot of integration of yoga and qigong into retreat practice itself, so that it's it's really entering into the forms of retreat, um, and it's so necessary. Um, and a lot of experimentation that will hopefully start to shift so that we can keep what is the essence of the practice and the dharma, the truth, but start to imbue it with um, things that will allow it to flourish in a healthy way. So that's what's coming up for me right now. You know, as you were talking, um, I was thinking how um, we're in conversations with each other. You know, that um, for me, um, in practicing Zen in a pretty pure way by living in the monastery and in traditional training centers, as um, folks come in from insight tradition, from other modalities, um, as we um, really look very deeply and um, honestly about how our tradition may um, be a barrier for people of color to come in. What is it about who we are and how we practice that might be that barrier? That we are being influenced by each other. So as you talk about the Mahayana influence, and there's also an influence coming the other way. And um, so for me, when I was doing the Sacred Feminine Retreat last year, um, and 
and we were doing it in the Zen center, but without the Zen forms, I just felt so freed up in some way. And it was just subtle things, like, you know, I'm not wearing my <laughs> Zen gear. Um, or we are, um, we are, uh, we put an altar in the middle of objects of the sacred feminine. We dance. We lay down and um, when any, whenever we want to. I mean, just these subtle little elements speak so powerfully to what has been um, not expressed or somehow f whether whether you know not a, there's no permission you know and I think if um, there's so much I can say about the influence of patriarchy on Zen and um, and it's a complicated history because uh, while we also had the uh, the influence of those um, special rules for women that there has been, Zen is kind of a rebel um, tradition, and it's been shifted and changed as it moves through Asia. And um, there have been also so much practicing outside of these institutional constraints. So there's a lot of uh, independence once somebody becomes Dharma transmitted to begin to bring different qualities. Um, so there's a wonderful book it's, um, called Zen Women, Beyond Tea Ladies, Iron Maidens, and Macho Masters, I love the title, by Grace Shearson, who's done a lot of work to look at, you know, really what women have done, especially women, be, women have done and how they have practiced um, be, and stayed embedded within their traditional um, requests, societal requests. So how they have... Um, used uh, the practice, even the monastic practice, in forming convents and using that to bring in women who were divorced and then lost any place in society and how they offered services. So I think we have a lot to learn in our, in our lay tradition of Zen here in America from those histories. And um, I wanted to just take a couple of minutes to say, you know, one of the things I was a little bit I felt a little bit funny doing when we were going to talk about um, Zen practice and the feminine uh, because I'm a teacher in the tradition and so I have to always watch if I'm just getting defensive about my tradition. But I do think I could say many, many things about um, the patriarchal elements in Zen and I, we will, we're going to be exploring this next weekend as a community um, and there is so much to, to undo. But I thought, you know, since we're celebrating the sacred feminine, I, I, I wanted to play with pointing to some things that I felt um, that we have been practicing with and playing with in order to make this um, or to speak to this, the feminine that's, that is inherent in our practice and also that we have made more explicitly part of our practice. So just to name a couple of things. Um, well, I would say, you know, it's interesting that you talk about the yan energy of sitting. And I was thinking of it, you know, when I think about zazen, to me it feels as if I am entering a womb, that there is a way in which I am being given permission to step out of the light, intense, um, active energy of my mind and my life, and I get to sit and I get to listen. And I listen to the stirrings and the churnings and the shadows and the depths of my um, quiet internal knowing. And um, 
you know, I think so much of this is, how, is not the form itself, but how we embody it. So if I think about posture, and when I first went to Zen centers and we were all lined up in black, <laughs> sitting very quietly, it felt as if everybody had become frozen, you know, and disembodied. And it, it felt very alienating to me. But I also think that what I was doing was um, projecting onto that situation um, the patriarchal tone and flavor of my own conditioning. And I do think also that Zen has traditionally been embodied in a very rigid way. You know, that this idea of um, sitting in a particular way, which has its yogic component, can be embodied by our patriarchal internalized selves in a very rigid way in which we feel like we are not allowed to move. We're actually moving all the time. Life is stirring through us. We're making micro adjustments. And once somebody said, you know, the, the practice of posture is a strong back and a soft, gentle front, to me felt like this, oh, this is the energetic balancing of yin and yang, of, of masculine and feminine. So as Seb said, too, I, I, I have found one of the most, um, one of the reasons I've devoted the last 20 years to Zen is because of the sense of community that it's kind of called family practice. And so we don't, uh, we, we very much in Zen look to how do we create a whole? How do we contain the whole? How do we um, orchestrate and create forms that allow the, um, the um, expression of all of us to be cared for in a way and consider all of us as we are making adjustments to the practice? So I, I find that to be a very, um, encouraging feminine energy um, in our practice that we, like you said, we're not doing it individually. And we're softening our individual ways in order to create that container. The other thing I would just mention is the focus on honoring our ancestors. And um, I'm so grateful to people in our lineage, um, female teachers and male teachers at San Francisco Zen Center, that I don't remember what date it was, but maybe late 80s, early 90s, they started to um, try to recapture the um, hidden and forgotten female ancestors and um, pulled it together uh, and offered. We, used, we always chant the male ancestors in our, in our services in the morning, in our long services. So we began to chant the female ancestors. And to me, um, I was saying, you know, Chanting the male ancestors, okay, but once the female ancestors, <laughs> I turn that page, something starts to wake up in me, and it's so enlivening. And it's so important because their practices have been lost. And just by hearing their names, we remember. We also um, do a full moon ceremony every, every month, which is um, our link to our ancestors. And I wanted to just point out here, since we have this, we have a little show and tell. Um, the other thing we do, which is so important, ancestry and lineage is so important in Zen. And when people become ordained, when they get Dharma transmitted, as, as Greg and Pam Weiss, who's double, double lineage, did a couple of years ago, um, they received not just the, we receive, we, we, you receive what's called a bloodline. 
and it, so there, it shows you you're linked to the, all the ancestors from Shakyamuni Buddha to you. And it notes, of course, just a, a, um, the, the lineage holders and the t teachers in each part of that lineage. And then it comes to you. And uh, again, this movement from our um, teachers in San Francisco, they started to create a female bloodline. And instead of being linear, it's circular. And it is, again, just a representation from each country, you know, from, from India. And um, we have India, I think Chinese, Japanese um, teachers called Prajnaparamita Kanan, the mother of the, mother of the Buddhas. And so um, what great, this is Greg's. And I just want to show it to you. It's uh, he ha they have to do it on silk, right? So they have to hand, um, hand, and you know it's not easy to do ink on silk. You can't make a mistake, <laughs> or it's part of it. And this uh, is purposeful. This red as menstrual blood. You know it's a blood vein, and you see these women receiving the circle women teachers, and. On the bottom, yep, is Greg's teacher, who's a woman, welcoming him into the line of female ancestors. And I, I think this is true, right? Greg, you were mentioning that. At first, um, Tia was only going to give the um, female ancestors to, to Pam. And Greg said, why, can't, why aren't I receiving? the female ancestors, right? So there's just a kind of a little example of how we might get caught in these categories and um, miss this opportunity to rebalance see, the feminine and the masculine. So I would just say one of the things that I think would be interesting to look at is to start to um, play with this for ourselves. What, what, what is, um, feels allowed when I sit down and walk into this space or into whatever practice space you're in? What, what um, gets stirred up? What are the thoughts and ideas and projections I have coming up? What do I feel like I have to leave behind or shut down or suppress in order to be here? Um, the last thing I would say, you know, we talk about how uh, when Zen moves from country to country, it takes hundreds of years for that practice to be transformed with the flavor of the culture, of that, of that place. And I think we're in the very early beginning stages of, um, you know, we're, sometimes we can be so impatient <laughs> with this process of transformation of how we're seeing the limitations of these practices um, as it meets patriarchy as it meets uh, white supremacy, and how do we engage and challenge our lineages, our practices, with also the understanding that these traditions and these forms, at least in the Mahayana tradition, I would say, have beautiful offerings as well. And so I, for me, I have to sit in that tension and um, also be sensitive to the impact of, of, of how a form gets impacted by our exploration. So um, I feel like it's sensitive, it's a sensitive feeling, um, thoughtful process, you know, that we absolutely have to engage in.
how we use words to escape from our feelings and our embodiment. So um, as I practice with people, I notice, you know, that they're speaking and I'll say something about, well, how do you feel about that or what do you sense about that? And they'll say, I think that. (laughs) And there's a popping out, always a popping out of the body, out of um, a trusting in the, um, the... the language of feeling, the language of sensation, um, or staying with and allowing that felt sense to grow and develop and get bigger um, and be felt. And, you know, I also think we have spent so many uh, millennium um, causing harm to ourselves and to each other that when we begin to feel, there's so much pain there. There's so much grief around the way we have... um, crushed those aspects of ourselves that that it's understandable why we'd want to pop up into the safety of the intellect but that's not our way home one thing we did do last year is we sort of mapped for ourselves what is energetic elemental sacred feminine and what is social and that mind body split is 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 social it's not the sacred and the elemental um and it doesn't map always to to male and female, um, whereas mind-body split has. So, yes, like how, how do we keep kind of investigating and navigating and pull apart and realize that this is, this is just concepts, you know, it's not, it's, it's not the truth, but it's, it's our way to understand some of what has happened and what's happening for us, you know, in, in, our, in ourselves and in relationship in our communities. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.